welcome to Northern Static, the show where Canadian composers tell us about the state of their art. I'm bassist and composer Pete Johnston, coming to you from that land that's north of America. On this show, I talk to composers from a range of musical scenes to find out how they make their music, why it sounds the way it does, and most importantly, what they think we should be listening for when we hear it. In this episode, I talk to composer and guitar player Christine Bougie. Christine is one of the busiest musicians in Toronto, playing as a side person in myriad projects ranging from chamber jazz to art pop. In between international musicking, she finds time to write and record albums of her own cinematic yet catchy compositions. Christine Bougie, coming up next on Northern Static. Welcome to episode four of Northern Static. The concept for this show is simple. I sit down and talk with composers about the creative processes and they play some compositions of their choice as examples of what they do. Think of it as a group listening session where the creator of the music is there to guide us through how and why they make the music they do. Today, I'm very pleased to offer you all some words and music from guitarist and composer Christine Bougie. Christine is an in-demand studio player and side musician who seems comfortable in just about any musical setting. When not busy helping other people to sound their best, Christine finds time to make her own music building compelling soundscapes from a variety of different guitars. I've admired Christine's writing and playing for many years, but her most recent album really struck me as a uniquely creative piece of work. Titled Whistle Up a World, it features a kind of full band sound generated entirely by the lap steel guitar. Christine wrote all the tunes and played all the parts on the lap steel, and the results are as charming as they are inventive. I really want to know how she made this record in particular and her process for creating the other compelling records in her deep discography. As her composing process differs so much from my own, I came away from our discussion inspired to broaden my methods or to at least try a few new things. I'm sure some of you listeners will share this reaction to Christine's generous description of her music making. I first came to know Christine's music from her duo with keyboard player David Hughes, which held down a regular gig at the Transac in Toronto for a number of years. So to get a bit of Christine's sound in your ears before our discussion, I'll play a tune from their 2008 album, This Is Awesome. This piece is called Hammy's Secret Life. today with Christine Bougie, guitar player, lap steel player, band leader, side person to the stars, <laughs> all around Toronto music making wizard. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You've been recording a lot of albums of your own mm-hmm. music in the last little while and also playing on a million records with, with other people. Yeah. So when did you start composing? I think even before I learned anything else on the guitar, like my first experience of picking up a guitar... I was composing right away. Like that's kind of what attracted me to it. Even I had a piano growing up and took piano lessons, did that thing for a while. And I think I was even making up stuff then. It was just, I was interested in creating stuff. The first time I picked up a guitar, I was playing it on my lap, you know, like the way you would Jeff play. Jeff Healy style? Yeah, exactly. Because that's just more comfortable. I was nine or 10. And I would just play it with my thumb over the sixth string and just kind of push it around and like make up tunes. So yeah, I've been composing, I mean... The, I don't know if I'd call it so, such officially like composing, but making up stuff. 
from the beginning. So it was always something I wanted to do, even when I was just playing in other bands, even as a teenager and just starting to get into that. I had a side sort of focus on writing my own stuff, whether it was being performed live or not. Before I got into music as like, this is my thing that I'm devoting all my time and obsession to, I was obsessed with comic books and I wanted to draw comic books. So like anything that I was obsessed with that was a sort of creative field, immediately I thought about doing that thing, you know? Making your own. Exactly. Like that's the first step into it. Even reading comics, it was like I was more interested in making them as soon as I got into them. Um, So yeah, drawing and comic books and visual art kind of stuff was big for me before music. So did you start playing in bands relatively soon after taking up the instrument? And I did, yeah. And, and like did, that, I, did that amount to writing your own tunes for bands? Well, I didn't really write stuff that I performed live for a while. Like that didn't happen until maybe my 20s, early 20s. But I played in a lot of bands. I felt like that's what I needed to do and that's how I kind of could develop myself as a player Um, as early as like 14 or 15 years old I started playing with kind of older guys around town who had bands and like rock bands yeah like sort of not not heavy rock stuff more like I don't know folk rock almost similar to what I'm doing now like singers (laughs) backing up singer songwriters and kind of a diverse style of music and getting into I got into jazz um, in high school so I started doing gigs with like a little jazz combo of, of players from my school, you know, when I was right. in like 11th grade. And, but we'd go out and do gigs. Uh, from St. Catharines. Whoa. Yeah, so I went to the St. Catharines Collegiate. Yeah, and there were great musicians there. And we would, we would go around and do gigs at like the school board fundraiser for this. Or, you know, somehow we got hooked up with gigs like through the school, like paying gigs. So that was also happening at, at the same time as like playing regular kind of gigs and in bars and stuff too. So what music were you into at that time? What was the rock music that got you excited? And then was there jazz music that did the same thing? Yeah. Well, I think like my introduction to jazz really was through Joni Mitchell, specifically through... Always the gateway drug. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that Shadows and Light live Mm -hmm. record, somebody lent that to me. And I, that was, that's my introduction to Joni actually. So it kind of happened, right. happened at the same time. Like up until that point, I was listening to... You skipped right over Blue and went right to... Yeah, totally. Shadows blue was like later for me. Even the first time I heard, I was like, eh, I don't know if Blue's my thing. I went Shadows and Light slightly backwards to Court and Spark, maybe. And that was kind of the tip of it. But before that, I was listening to, like, when I was really young and starting to play guitar, I loved Led Zeppelin and just the typical things that you like as a guitar player that you're getting into. So I, I had a diverse sort of interest in rock, pop music. I liked everything. I would put on any tape that I had in the house, my mom's, like, new country tapes, and just, like, play along with them. I was just interested in playing music and, like, recreating what I heard. But somebody lent me that uh, Shadows and Light CD when I was 15, I think. So it simultaneously exposed me to Joni and her music. And then also just like, oh, who's this? Jaco Pastorius, Pat Metheny, Michael Brecker. Why and is then, the bass so crazy on this record? Yeah, like what is this instrument even? Mm-hmm. And then I remember like I had a, a library card at that time in St. Catharines and 
you could take out CDs, you take out 10 at a time <laughs> for like a week. So it was great because it was the age of taping things. Oh, yeah. You know, so I would just take out. All mine are still in my mom's basement of yeah, all the CDs oh, I taped totally, from the library. Totally, me too. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how I discovered so much. I mean, it's kind of what we have now with iTunes or Spotify or whatever, but it was just better because it was so physical. Yeah. But I would take like an album I liked, like Shadows and Light, bring it to the library, like carry, look at the back liner notes, look at the players and go, okay, Pat Matheny, who's this? And I'd go to the M's and check out his CDs and like take three or four of his CDs and take them home and listen to them and figure out what I liked and tape what I liked. So that's how I discovered, you know, through all of those players on that record and then kind of connected the dots between once I figured out who Pat Metheny was and I was like, oh, who's John Schofield? Who's Bill Frizzell? Like all these guitar players in this kind of zone. But at that point, that's that's what I got into. So Joni occupies an interesting position as being a sort of pop person that jazz people like. Mm-hmm. But she's always she's very composerly herself as someone to discover and someone whose career to follow. Mm-hmm. She's writing ambitious music. Even the folk songs are totally challenging yep. in, in their own way or, or complex and not your usual forms and mm-hmm. tunings and all that. Is that something you, you picked up on? Yeah, absolutely. Like part of it was her not using standard tuning helped me to, and, and it still affects me in this way where because I don't, know exactly what the tuning is and I can't visualize it on the guitar. Her music kind of stays in this magical listening place. When you listen to music, when you're, before you understand much about music, it's in that place. Like it seems magical, it's mysterious. You don't know what a guitar is tuned like and what the chord shapes are. And you can't visualize like when you hear a hi-hat, you don't necessarily know what that is. And later on, you start listening to music and that's all you can sort of see as you're hearing it. Like, oh, that's the bass part. That's the drum part. And with Joni's music being so strange sounding, it's it's still like that for me. Like, I don't like to learn her music. I haven't really up until this point. I, I kind of want to keep the mystery, but I, I feel like I'm, I'm going to kind of change on that and get into it a bit. It's been so many years. It's nice to have something that stays in that zone. So when did you start writing music to either play yourself or play with other people? Well, I went to school, I went to Humber College to study guitar and just kind of keep on that path that I was already on. I knew I wanted to just play guitar. Um, and then I guess when I was there, I started to think about, well, jazz compositions. You know, I was just playing a lot of instrumental jazz music and then seeing how I could fit my thing into that. I just, I think I needed to, wanted to write tunes that I could be playing at whatever kind of gigs I had with just some other instrumentalists. Like lead sheet kind of? Exactly. Just like simple things. Even when I wasn't intending to perform stuff live, I always had a kind of a practice of just recording stuff at home, like on a four track or I had an eight track mini disc recorder. Oh man. Those are the days. (laughs) I love that thing. I love just the physicalness yeah. of it, you know? Like I had a four-track cassette recorder and a lot that's, of hours. That's the first step. I, yeah. I love the eight-track because there was none of the, this is backwards, flip this yep. over. It's just like, <laughs> it made way more sense. And I think each, if you're going to record multi-track, like eight-track, you could get 18 minutes per disc. So just like a good limitation of like, here's a disc with a few tunes on it. So I would record stuff, even if I wasn't really intending to, perform it live but then that started to just sort of bleed over into well I have gigs or I'm playing and I'm just playing guitar and there's a drummer and a bass player might as well write some tunes for that purpose and so I kind of like amassed the collection of ideas and tunes and I went to the Banff workshop the creative jazz and creative music workshop in 2004 and Frizzell was there which is part of the reason why I wanted to go that year
I got to like sit with him and I had these tunes with me, like they wrote charts for them. And so we got to play them together, which was amazing. It was really like his insistence that I get it done, like record it, like make an album out of this stuff. Like he really encouraged me. He's like, you're ready to do this now. Don't Hmm. think that you have to wait to like do this course or do this type of schooling or whatever. It's like, you've got a few tunes. And it was just this advice of like, you never quite feel like you're ready and you always are ready, you know, that thing. So you should just do it. So it sounds like your early process was about starting from recording stuff more than notating or oh yeah, or improvising on tape more or less. Yeah, I think Have so. I got that right? Totally. Even when I was learning just how to play the guitar, it was so fun for me to record. I would just basically like re-record a Led Zeppelin tune. I would take Ramble On and do the thing where you have the two ghetto blasters facing each other oh, and yeah. like sort of record the acoustic guitar into one, then play that and, rec- you know, play on top of it and do the bass line on the guitar. And that was so fun. And just to like recreate that music and it wasn't even my own original music. So yeah, I think I always start with a recording focus. And even that's to this day, that's the way I write music. Like I don't write sort of in thin air and then jot down the notes on a piece of paper. I can't really connect it that way. I have to start with recording it and hearing it back. So what kind of system do you use to do that now? Like I'll do it in Logic. I'll record in Logic. And before I did that, I used to use just like a loop station, one of those boss loop recorders that holds like 11 presets in it. So I would use that for a few of my albums to like get my ideas down. I would just like create a loop and save it in, you know, preset number one, then just kind of like let it sit for a few days and go to the next preset and make a new idea and save all those up. And once I had 11, I dumped them out to my computer and just kind of label them like idea one to 11, you know, or for this week or something and just collect ideas that way. And that's still sort of the way that I work. Like sometimes I'll go back to the loop pedal, but I'll also just do that in logic now i'll just open a whole new file and kind of just play with stuff and save that as a file but yeah i, I mean I do yeah you're ma- i mean you're making me nostalgic with the the mini disc eight track yeah and just how much easier kind of was to do that sort of thing with just a dedicated object than exactly i record on logic Two, do stuff i can sort of talk myself out of doing it because it's such a pain to set up with the computer sort of even totally. though once you got it in and everything yeah, set it's up, easy. everything's easy but there's just something so nice too. about yeah just hauling out the four track and Oh, yeah. That's all you needed and letting it go. Yeah. And just also like mixing with your hands, uh, your fingers on faders and really like getting because uh, I, I would record to that eight track mini disc and then I had a component CD burner. So like, <laughs> <laughs> if I wanted to make, you know, an official version of this tune that I had been recording and mix it down, like I couldn't I didn't even have a computer when I was doing this, like I didn't own a computer. So it existed on the mini disc and I needed to get it onto a CD. So right. I go out of the mini disc into the CD burner and get those like writable CDs that you mix in real time. I'll just press record on the CD thing and then start mixing it. And if I like made a mistake or was like, oh, I meant to push the bass up in this section and I didn't, I just have to keep redoing it. So I'd end up with these CDs of 20 versions and I'd have to make note like, oh, number 17 is the one. <laughs> which is just such a great way to practice doing that, you know? So were you overdubbing like uh, all, all on guitar, like you're playing bass parts on guitar kind of thing? Or? Well, I've always played drums as well oh. and had like sort of some type of drum kit that I've thrown together even since I was maybe 13 or 14. So I I would record that as well. I could try to record my own drums just really with like a, one microphone maybe or just percussion stuff. And then lots of guitars, maybe some keys, some bass. That's basically it. Like, that's how I've layered things. But I did a record um, doing that, like, just a a couple years ago where I played all those instruments. Before this all lap steel thing that I did, it was a similar thing, but it was just I played drums and bass and keys. Do you have a kind of regular writing process that you do, like certain parts of your practice routine or during the day or, like, Kind of, to, yeah. To take me through a day, a creative day in your life when, uh, <laughs> well, when you're when working I'm on Well, when I'm focused something. on writing a record or just like I'm going into writing mode, I want to write a bunch of material because I, I don't really have it as composition as part of my daily habit necessarily. It's, um, it's project-based. 
And so if I have that project set in mind, I'll block off a few weeks on a calendar if I can, where I'm mostly home, you know, and I'll just call that idea time where the only focus is just to make things up and have no real goal for it, no like no structure, no editing, no thinking about what's this for, how would this go together with this, just like dump things out. And that's where I've used the loop station a lot, where I'll have it set up. And then, like I said, that one that has the 11 presets, I would 11 days in a row, like go make one a day, like make one thing a day that is a loop and then build on it. And then just collect those. And at the end of that, dump that off and then continue that once or twice again. And then I have like 30 ideas. Would those 11 go together or are you just putting them in kind of the I've same I've tried it in, in two different ways. Like I've tried where I just go in every day and go whatever comes out, like just it's early in the morning, just play something and see what happens. Um, and the problem with that is, yeah, then I could end up with like 30 completely disconnected weird little things. And I don't know what to do with them. And sometimes that's good. And that's just good to get a library going of little snippets of ideas. And then I've tried the thing where making a little bit more structure with it, I'll go, okay, this week I will keep building on whatever I kind of start with. So I'll come up with an idea on Monday morning and record that loop. And then the next day when I come in, I'll listen to that, get it in my head and play it again maybe, and then try to build on it. And then maybe collect five or seven ideas that I feel like could go together and still not edit them until like weeks later. Right. I just feel like I want to have a period where I dump ideas out and then go away from it and don't listen to it, forget the memory of it even in my fingers, and then come back and listen to it and go like, what's good here? What kind of goes together maybe? Sort of mark those things out or drag them out, put them into like logic or something and start playing with them. I used to have to do that too, my composition professor oh, yeah? at Dalhousie. That was his, his whole thing, sketchbooks. And we'd actually get graded on them. We'd have to show up at the end wow. of the term with a sketchbook with like a hundred sketches or whatever, whatever it was. And yeah. I don't know if he ever played through them, but he would just see like, did you do this? Yeah, well, it's interesting <laughs> thinking of it like related to visual art. You know, people have like, visual artists keep sketchbooks, just like a physical book. And they're just drawing like somebody they see on the bus and draw this flower, draw this thing and just keep practicing those things. And it's just to keep you limber with it as well. Maybe you just stumble upon something cool. But you tend to think of it around preparing for something. I do, yeah. Specific. I don't. I don't do it like I'd like to do it more often as a like a daily kind of ritual. But I just find there's there's so many things with music that I want to do every day. It's it's hard to just do. You can't have a day where you do everything. You know, right. you kind of have to break it up. I, I find it's nice to immerse yourself in it as well and go. This is three weeks where I'm I'm not going to practice. You know, I'm not thinking about like my skills. I'm just dumping out ideas from my brain. So how would you describe the style or character of things? Like genre-wise? Maybe. Yeah. But, but just the influences or the, the sounds you're going after or the, the sounds that get you excited or the approaches to putting things together. It's so tricky for me to, cause yeah, it's, it's hard to kind of label it or describe where it comes from because I mean, I'm writing instrumental music, but it's very far removed from jazz now, I think. Like I kind of started there or maybe didn't start there, but went there for a while and got into that. And even with my first record, it's pretty jazz influenced and there's like long solos. And I've been getting further away from that over the years. Sometimes it feels easier to say what it's not, you know, like it's not jazz and it's... Okay, so let me ask you then, what, what makes it not jazz? <laughs> I wonder if it's about improvisation, but I, I do like to improvise. It's just my... my Compositions have become more song-like and structure, less about maybe having a sort of a template that is like for soloing. And they're definitely song-focused and melody is the main thing to me. Like okay. I don't really write music that doesn't have almost like a singing type of melody. So to hmm. me, they're, they're almost like pop songs, more, more related to like pop song kind of structure, tradition than jazz maybe. But there's a jazz influence in that it's there's an improvisation kind of element and that kind of interaction between players maybe too. The jazz yeah. kind of interaction? Yeah. 
But in the records of yours that I know, the smaller groups. Yeah, that's true. You're, you're not having a quintet or something. Everybody really stretching out on something. No, yeah. I haven't really done much of anything that would be stretching out on a record in quite a few years. It's, it seems to be just getting tighter and tighter and smaller and smaller. Like in that, <laughs> even like I was saying two records ago, I did the thing where it was all me and I played everything and I played drums and bass and guitar. And then the last record, it's again, it's all me, but it's just the lap steel. It's like narrowing down to the smallest possible. Is that because you're starting to hate people? I know. I think it was partly it was like, well, I mean, I like to have a limitation. Just I, I want some parameter to focus on to get me to come up with creative ideas. I mean, the idea of just using the lap steel really appealed to me. Cause like, oh, I can make this sound like, or how can I make this sound like drums and percussion and bass and all these different types of sounds. Like, what could I do with this instrument that hasn't been done? And then also, it's just, I mean, it's easy to work that way. And I kind of like getting into my own world when it's just me. And it, But it definitely makes me feel like, well, now I want to do the complete opposite. You know, for the next thing I want to do, I want to have people to play with and play live off the floor and, you know. You collaborate with people so much and play in other people's bands. Does it sort of come down to, if you're thinking about your own thing, to drill down into what you're about yeah that might be it yeah there's something I really like about and I'm, maybe I've just been doing it also since I was a little kid where it's like it's all me I'm just in my bedroom and I'm just overdubbing mm -hmm. it's just like a comfort zone way of making music yeah because it, it seems like there's something about your method that that leads to that because you're yeah. like in the process of composing you're kind of recording the album in a certain in a certain yeah, way yeah I'm like uh, making a demo of it really and I just did that recently where I uh, I tried for the first time composing these long form pieces of music. You know, I have that um, group that does the pet sounds thing with yeah. Andrew. And so I have this group and we do, we perform the whole pet sounds, Beach Boys pet sounds album live, instrumentally, top to bottom. And it's with lap steel, Wurlitzer, or I play guitar as well, and clarinet and cello. And I wanted to write some original music for this group to play. And I, for some reason, I had this grand idea of writing like a long form piece of music, which I've never done before. Like I've just not even close attempted that. And I did it. I wrote two 10 minute pieces of music. And I was thinking, oh, I'll, I'll you know, I'll have a score. Like I'll eventually I will have to turn it into a score. But all I did was it record it like it's in a recorded logic file with MIDI, you know, representations of clarinet right. and cello and, and the lap steel I just played. But even still, that's how, even if it's a piece like that, it's always about recording it first. So I can just, that's how I kind of, that's how I figured out. I just have to hear what I'm playing. Right. You know. Do you ever notate them? Just like, afterward, just yeah. as a means to get someone else to play it. Like right. if I'm, if, you know, Andrew and Julia and everyone, that are, they're going to play those pieces, I'm going to have to chart it out for them or yeah. i could give them a recording and go you figure it out but that's not, that's not really nice <laughs> that's not so pro <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, it's like they don't necessarily exist in a notated um, they don't space. I, I even discover like what the i'm lifting my own music like there's a period hmm. of where i'm making charts and i'm lifting it and figuring it out and trying to figure out what chord is this like i don't know, you right. know i'm not thinking of it that way and it's like is this a flat seven sharp like it i don't know I just have to make my best guess of what the sound is. So it's really, yeah, about the sound first. Well, just wondering what you think about the the relationship between the recording and the live performance thing, because your your records and the way you're describing your process now, you're making a real recorded document. It's not like a jazz quartet record or a chamber record where you're mm -hmm. going in and doing it live off the floor. It's how do you connect that to how you would do some of this music live? It's tricky. Or is there stuff that you just don't? Well, yeah, I, I started leaning toward not doing it live the more kind of insular it got like these these albums like the first couple albums I made I made with other players and it made sense I could understand how to play it live um the last one being all lap steel took me a while to figure out what I was going to do because I knew I had to perform it live at least once officially and I thought maybe I'll have three other lap steel players and try right. to actually do that <laughs> which is kind of crazy and I ended up just going, well, okay, so there are parts that I wrote and I'm performing on the lap steel, but they're the bass parts. So like I could have a bass player do that. And likewise, there's like drum parts. There could be a drummer. So I put together a band 
with just sort of traditional players like that, like keys and bass and percussion and drums, but they also had to sort of make it sound like they're recording. And for a, a bass player specifically, because I recorded these bass parts, these parts that are like a bass on the lap steel, and the lap steel is fretless, I was like, I need a fretless bass player. That's mm -hmm. like It has to be a fretless bass. Fretless so, electric bass. Fretless electric bass, mm -hmm. yeah. So Drew Burston played this gig with me, and he was awesome. And he could also play melodies like apply so it kind of sounds we could do counter melody parts that are on the record and everyone that performed this stuff live had you know a, a few pedals and effects so that they could get their stuff sounding as weird as my lap still sounds so it was pretty effective to do it that way but it's still yeah it starts with the recording even though I charted stuff out it was like they all have to listen to the recording and figure out what sonically they're trying to do in this tune, you know? Well, that seems like a good spot to actually listen to some music. Maybe you can take us through um, one of your compositions. Mm -hmm. What would you like us to hear? Well, since we're talking about the Lap Steel record, we can play the first track off that. It's called Do I Ramble. All right. Okay, here we go. Do I Ramble from uh, Christine Bucci's uh, Whistle Up a World, mm -hmm. which I'll have links in the show notes to okay. how you can find all this stuff. Here we go. Okay, what do you think we should be listening for in, in this kind of thing? It's funny because I'm not sure how to exactly talk about how I write because it's, I'm not thinking about it as I'm writing. I'm just trying to be come up with melodies and feel something out. But I was thinking about this tune before I came here and uh, how it came about. And um, I actually have like a clip I could play you of sort of like the seeds of the idea for this tune, if that's useful. That's great. Sketch I have, I have two, two little sketches that I ended up marrying Amazing. together that became this tune. Okay, sketch number one. Mm -hmm. 
mean, that's it. It's just like a tiny, it's a very short idea. It's a loop. So right. it's really just a three bar phrase, maybe that happens twice, um, or four bar phrase. It's three bars of four and a bar of two, it ends up being. But this was the first, like when I sat down to start thinking about putting down music for this project, which I didn't know was going to be all lap steel, I just was going to write some new music and figure out what to do with it later. This was the very first idea I came up with. And it's very short and simple, but it had like a feeling in it that when I came back to listen to pieces later, all the sketches, even though it was just the very first one, this one I was like, oh, it's got to stay in there because it's got something in it. And I remembered what my feeling was as I was coming up with these ideas. And this was February, uh, a month after David Bowie died. Yeah, I'd just been listening to his music. Of course, his new album was released like the day before, yeah. or two days before he died. So I had just got it and was so excited listening to it. And then I think I listened to it the day before he died. And I was just really impacted by that news. I mean, he was a big influence on me. And uh, so I was listening to his stuff and just thinking about him a lot um, and listening to the late 70s, like Heroes era stuff. When I Robert sat down, Fripp. Robert Fripp, and when I sat down to write something, I want. I started with that Robert Fripp. I was like, I want to do like a Robert Fripp style, fluttering, layered, guitars. Just basically that over some sort of bass groove. You might not know this about me, but I have a very deep love for Robert Fripp. Oh really? Oh me oh, too. Boy. Oh more on that later. He's amazing. <laughs> he's uh, I love his playing, and I love his playing on other people's stuff. Like I love his mm -hmm. sideman stuff. And that was kind of the original seed of the idea was just like do something sort of like that. And I, I didn't, just, there's no melody really in that. It's just sort of like a, a feel, that little seed of an idea. And I was playing a bass in that recording. And then once I decided that it was going to be an all lap steel project, that bass line turned into sort of a melody line. I just played it on the lap steel. So yeah. it went up an octave and kind of became more of a line. Um, but it was that idea that I kept, and then I smashed it together with another idea that I found, which was... Yes, too. Yeah, this one. So that obviously became the main melody of the tune. Mm -hmm. And I just sort of expanded on that a bit by changing the bass line, I think. Like I, I do it twice, uh, two times in a row, and then the second time the bass line changes a bit. But that to me was a strong enough melody and it seemed to marry well to that first idea somehow in feel. And maybe just the tempos were sort of the same, it was in the same zone. So I just basically like what I do with a lot of these sketches is I just try sticking two up against each other and see what happens. You know, like do can they go together? Um, can I just adjust the tempo or the key or or even not and just smash them together and see if that sparks something? What strikes me about it, uh, this record in particular, and you know, the very strong melodies and um, grooves and rhythms and all mm -hmm. that. That's just was very beautiful. Uh, but then some really adventurous timbre and sound. Mm going on on top of it that that makes it sound not like Nashville yeah. Oh, <laughs> or, yeah. or, or, or what have you. Yeah. Can you can you tell me a bit about that, your, your approach to sound and, and timbre on this stuff? Yeah, it's yeah, it is weird. I mean, I think just the way that I play approach the lap steel, I don't know if it's because I haven't really studied like I, I don't study other lap steel players in the way that I maybe did with guitar. I, I just always felt felt like it's my own instrument and I didn't have wasn't emulating anybody else's sound um that maybe it's just naturally developed to be it sounds I've got my own sound that I don't really know I can't compare it to other players but it seems like you're you're after other stuff too right that that you're pushing the sound of the thing around yeah I mean to me 
the instrument, the actual physical lap steel that I play, like the specific like Gibson Skylark lap steel, because I've played some other ones and tried other ones, and they sound a little bit different. Like mine has this certain sound, and I use flat wound strings, and whatever it is, the combination of things, it's got a certain kind of whininess even, and muted because of the flat wound strings. There's sort of a muted tone or the tuning that I use. It just kind of inspires a different sound. I mean, I'm using some, I'm using effects and stuff on, on the record. And one of the main ones that helped like with doing the layers and layers of lap steel is the POG. It's like polyphonic octave thing. So you can put a lower octave and a higher octave and then you can blend them together. Yeah. And I mean, that's, I did most of the bass type sounds using that, just POG octave down lap steel. We also did a little bit of the thing where we would record it at double speed and then slow it down which is harder to do, but yeah. kind of creates a cool sound. You get this different sort of woofy air around it. But the Pog bass sounded awesome. And then I would often like layer something with a layer of the octave up on the Pog as well and create this just layered section of melody or background. But I don't know, a lot of the weirdness just comes out of weird little tricks and things that I've naturally evolved to do on the lap steel yeah well it sounds like you've got the basic tune and then adding a lot of other stuff around yeah. that or something it <laughs> could be stripped down to the very basic elements of like what's in that melody i mean there's just a bass line a melody and there's one other line moving through it that creates that you can kind of decipher what chord is this between a bass the bass note is basically all G throughout the whole thing and then there's a moving line that's happening around it so you go oh this is sort of G augmented this is sort of G7 based on that but there's no chords it's no chordal instrument and there's no chords being played just two notes really and then a lot of again like frip style stuff which is just kind of all around G or G6 ish or I have to move it around depending on what's happening but a lot of just sort of like shimmering stuff in the key of G <laughs> basically it's happening around there and swirling around it to create like an atmosphere. You know? Yeah. What else you got? Do yeah, well, you, uh... I was thinking of an older tune that I did in 2011, 10, 2010, uh, right. Me, Her. I got that one right here. Oh, great. Me, Her, here we go. From, what's the record? Uh, Aloha, Aloha Supreme. Supreme. All right, here it goes. Thank you. 
that's a bit of a, a different thing because mm-hmm. obviously you're working with other players there, other people. Um, how did that make it different for you? Well, it still started in the same way where this tune, I mean, I, I wrote it alone, but and I didn't write it with the intention. Well, I'll tell you what the intention was. This is a love song for my partner, Allie, and we'd been together for, I don't know, maybe a couple of years when I wrote it. And I wrote it as like an anniversary gift, not intending to be on an album or to be performed. It was just like, this is a song I wrote for you. And I found like over the years, I've, I've done a few of those. I've done like an anniversary song or a birthday song where I'm writing specifically for Allie. And they usually turn out really well. And I was thinking like, what, what is it about like the intention of writing like this is a love song? And I, I think it's just because there's a message. Like you're writing with this intention rather than just writing a piece of music where you don't know what it's about necessarily. It's just like, I'm just making sounds and playing around. This is like, no, this is a message and a feeling that I have that I'm trying to get through with the music that I make. And so I wrote this with that intention. And it's like, um, I don't know, have you read Stephen King's On Writing book? No. It's a great it's a great book. Actually. I've read The Stand, though. Me too. It's also great. But he has a book about like process that he wrote called On Writing. And he talks about how as a writer, you should have an ideal reader, sort of where you're, you're thinking about this one person that you're writing to. And for him, that's his wife. So she's also literally the first person that reads his work. So when he finishes a book, he brings it to her and like watches her read it. Basically like sits on a couch and just watches her read the book alone. He's known for being creepy. <laughs> yeah. But he, I mean, he knows her so well and then obviously trusts her opinion. So he's like looking for where she's going to laugh, where she's going to get scared. Like, is it effective? And I feel like with something like this or like a love song that you're writing for somebody, you, you're trying to get a reaction from them specifically and so Allie was my ideal listener for this. And that influenced what I was actually writing, even to the point, I'll play it a bit, even just starting with the feel of like this kind of pulse thing. I think at the time, I just knew that that was a feel of a tune that Allie really liked. Maybe there was another song that we were listening to that had that or that I came up with or something. And then also like that four chord to minor four like I don't think I would have done that if it was just I'm writing this tune for my album or something that specifically I know that Allie likes that chord change like it was just mentioned at some point or I did it and it really resonated so like those are things that I put in there to please specifically Allie you know as the listener and that's how it came about and then once it I was like oh this is a good tune I you know it made it to the stage where I had other players to play it with and perform it live and then put it on an album. So there was a lot of love went into it. Yeah, I just think I have other I should tunes. try inserting some love into music sometimes. It's just like a way of, I mean, that's one thing you could do, but it just, it made me think about how much the intention that you're putting into the music you're making. When you have an instrumental song, you might not even know, you're like, what's this about? I don't, I don't know. It's just a song I came up with. But when you really have a specific intention behind it, like a message, it gives it a spine. And so because you did this uh, with, with other people, you this one would have had to be notated in, in yeah. some way, yeah? Yeah, so I recorded it originally, just like made a little demo of myself playing guitar and lap steel, and that's all it was. And then um, I had Paul Matthew, Kieran Adams, and Dabith Hughes on board for making an album with me. So yeah, I just charted it out, and it's it's pretty straightforward as far as like, these are the chords, this is the melody. It was an easy one to kind of, notate afterwards but performing it with them like doing it live a few times and even in the studio like it does change the nature of it having the drums like having Kieran interpret the I didn't tell him what to play and that's doing like a pulsing floor tom kind of groove against this thing you know didn't have to do that and that really becomes a signature part of the song and also is his choice to go into double time after there's a big build in the bridge I didn't think of that because I didn't conceive it was drums so and now that's of course like I can't imagine it without that it has to be that way right so uh, this is just a note I had here from listening is, is so much of what we talked about is, is really self-contained where you're you know literally recording everything yourself but mm-hmm. generally working out the parts and it seems with this one there was a there was a little bit of collaboration yeah totally and Dabith too like in his keyboard playing 
little bits of maybe an improvised answer to a melody or something from us performing it. Uh, the two of us used to play the Transac every Monday and we would play this song a bunch before I took it to the full band version. And I think we developed little bits of the melody together by having a little ad lib that we would do and then that would kind of get solidified into the actual melody and it kind of grew from there. I like this frame you have from Mr. King of the ideal listener. Mm -hmm. So obviously the example you presented, you're writing something very specific for an occasion for a specific person. Mm -hmm. have, you, have you drawn that idea out to something not quite so specific? And just so generally what, what the role of, of the listener in the musical communication process. So in that story, you're putting one listener you yeah. know, front, front and center, but is there a more general way of thinking through that? I think like as far as putting like an intention into, into the music that I write, rather than just, I, I probably think of Ali as my first listener all the time, even if it's not like a love song. But I'm also trying to have maybe a story behind a song a lot of the time. So like, especially on this album, I, I think I did that a lot on Aloha Supreme where like the first tune is uh, Chet and Chomsky. And those were two pet rats that a roommate of mine had, that those <laughs> are the names. And I was listening to that, I was considering talking about that tune as well today. And because that's really like a, a story, it has sort of <laughs> a, a tragic ending when one of them dies. Like I structured the song sort of around that. And there's a two voices in the beginning where it's it's sort of like a duet. I imagine between these two rats sort of singing to each other. So a lot of a lot of the time, rather than just thinking of not necessarily who's going to listen to it, it's just more like what is the actual, you know, what's the meaning of the song? What's the story behind it? Because it's wordless. It's all instrumental music. It has to have something more behind it than just melodies and chords, you know. Instrumental music is always a bit of a, a challenge. I mean, we're used to jazz being instrumental, but mm -hmm. um, as you know, there's not a ton of cultural space for instrumental music that's yeah, beyond sort that, of soundtracks yeah. or whatever, but that, yeah. that's not that. So where, where do you see what your music's fitting in in the general musical world? Yeah, I mean, I guess I definitely connect with film and television soundtrack kind of music, although sometimes like my compositions wouldn't fit so much for that purpose because they have too much melody, you know, they're too song-like. So there's something in between, you know, the pop song or whatever kind of song and the soundtrack world where it's like a little something in between there on that spectrum where my music exists, where it's kind of like music that you can use in that way, where it's like a functional thing where, you know, there's certain albums that I put on if I'm going to be doing some writing on the computer and I listen to just instrumental music that is not jazz because it's not too busy, but has like a little bit of melody. And I think this music sometimes fits in that zone. And then other times it, it sticks out too much because it does have a lot of melody and, and some moments of improvisation in it. I don't know. It's in this weird in-between in zone. You know, I'm always interested in composition and improvisation. The way you, the way you just address the idea of improvising is that those things stick out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what is it about improvising that makes it stick out? Yeah, I don't know. I have been I've been doing less of it on my records. I mean, I, that might have been an influence too of Josh Fantassel, who produced the last two things that I did. Where I would go, oh, maybe I think in this section I was just gonna like give me solo of it and have some improvisation, and he'd go, no, like let's maybe let's just cut that in half and don't improvise. <laughs> <laughs> And then so the songs just got shorter and shorter, more concise. But I think that's been a good choice a lot of the time because oftentimes I would sort of stick in improvisation as like filler almost. You know, it's like, right. well, I don't really know what to do here, so maybe I'll just kind of fill it and just play around. And sometimes that's good. Like you need a break and that gives you a chance to just sort of expand on something or explore something. Um, and other times it's kind of a cop-out or something. Like a default. Yeah, it's nice to have somebody to bounce against to just at, just to figure out, like, which is it and know the difference and make the right choice for the tune. Right, because you know what happens if it's improvised. Yeah. It's jazz. <laughs> exactly. Then you got to be careful. You get a whole other... Yeah, uh... although I feel, like, really drawn to the idea of having, of for the next thing that I do, I, I want to do so much improvisation 
because I've done so little of it in right. the last record or two. I, I'm feeling pulled to do that more. You're involved with so much different stuff and mm -hmm. and and doing your own thing and, and other people's things and the grown up music business and the mm -hmm. uh, whatever the the bottom feeding music business and <laughs> you know everything everything in between. How do you deal with sort of current trends in the music business and do these inform your work, either the way you're putting out music or presenting it or what have you? Is there technologies stuff you engage with or other people doing interesting things? I think just it makes me. Uh, the way that music is put out now and that it's sort of, I mean, CDs are less of a thing. And every time I make a CD, I think, oh, this is the last CD I'm going to put out. I'm not, next time I'm not going to put out a CD, it's just going to be digital or maybe some vinyl. So that's influenced the way I've thought about it. I mean, because people are putting out essentially singles, like more in the pop world. It's like closer to the 1950s model of like putting out putting out singles and maybe an A and a B side and doing that more often rather than releasing this album that is this concept that you've spent a year working on. But I can't really shake that way of thinking about it. Like I, I still, I don't know if I would ever get away from thinking about music as, or composing at least as like putting together a collection that makes so sense. So you are thinking long form about these things. Yeah. I, I do think about putting out more stuff and smaller chunks that you know, might I might want to explore next. I was thinking about collaboration in that way too, right? Having a project where maybe maybe a tune a month or something where you collaborate with somebody and that sort of back and forth email this track and come up with something and take like a few weeks to put it together and just releasing that as it comes out rather than saving it all up and then going, here's 12 songs for a record. Although by the end of the year, you would have a 12 song record. But as far as like musical style or anything, it doesn't, whatever's happening in the world now doesn't really affect me and my music as much. I mean, I'm just influenced by whatever I'm listening to, but I don't feel like I have to consider that even because I play with so many other artists and that's my kind of main thing and that's how I make a living. Everything that I do that is under my name and that's my own project feels so free to explore like anything right. that I want. I'm not on a label. No one's telling me what to do. There's no expectation I could make a heavy metal record next if I wanted to. Oh, please do. <laughs> I don't think I will. Oh. But, you know, I could just go anywhere with it and I, I'd like to keep it that way. You know, I like that total freedom that it's it's just open. So given that, do you have a, a particular musical vision that, that you haven't been able to realize for technical or financial reasons mm. or an idea of what music in an ideal world you would like to do? I would love to do something bigger. Like I just recently, I was subbing in for Tom Gill in the Queer Songbook Orchestra, which is a 12-piece, I think. And it was really inspiring playing with them. And I immediately thought, oh, I'd love to play even that tune that we listened to, Me, Her, in that style, like have an arrangement for that group to perform bigger versions of that tune for one. And, and there's a definitely a tune on my new record that I, I originally heard in that way. And I just put it on this lap steel album in this sort of smaller version. But in my mind, it's always been this bigger piece with like strings and horns. And I would love to do that. I'd love to do a project specifically with that orchestra. It just would be, I mean, I'd have to get a grant or something to make yeah. that happen. That's a big, big yeah. deal. Financial restrictions. Yeah, but something big like that. And the music that I've been writing recently, even just for that four-piece, the Pet Sounds group with clarinet and cello and Wurlitzer and lap steel, it's bigger sounding. Even though it's for those four instruments, I could also hear that music being performed with more, maybe a 12-piece. That'd be really cool. Maybe that's next. I don't know if I could get get the funds together to make something like that happen. Get on the grant train. <laughs> yeah, I should. Because it's these records are are so self contained. Mm -hmm. It's really remarkable. Zooming out to a bigger canvas, maybe it would be exciting. I think it would it would be really exciting for me to just have the the lap steel as a, more like the role of a singer, where it's just sort of the single voice, no overdubbing, and have all the parts executed with different instruments. Oh. Wow. I'd really like to try that. Okay. Well, I hope we get to hear it. Yeah, for sure. All right. Christine, thanks so much for joining me here. Real treat to hear your music and, and talk about it. Cool. Thank and you. I look forward to hearing 
what happens next. For sure. Because something will. Absolutely. Okay. Always. <laughs> Bye. Thanks. That's the end of the show. Thanks to Christine for taking the time to chat with me. You can find links to Christine's music and upcoming gigs at her website, christinebougie.com. All of her recordings are available on Bandcamp, and there's lots of good footage of her dropping some serious science on the YouTube. As always, check the show notes for links and information about the music. The content and sound quality of the show is the sole responsibility of me, Pete Johnston. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this episode. More importantly, tell your friends to have a listen. You can find me on SoundCloud and on my own website, PeteJohnstonMusic.com. To close out the show, here's the tune Chet and Chomsky, which Christine referenced towards the end of our chat. You can find this on her album, Aloha Supreme. See you next time. Mm-hmm.